So here we go. We've got a live recording. Abnormal Psychology, Psych 213. So this is a, it's not one of the longer slides, but because we have limited time today, we're probably only going to make it through halfway. Um, so this will probably be a two-parter for a recording. Um, in our textbook, this is chapter 14, again, Abnormal Psychology. In our textbook, they like to throw sometimes multiple categories in abnormal psychology into the same uh, chapter, and that's what they've done here. So there's actually three sets of disorders. Two of the disorders, two of the sets of disorders are easy to talk about because there's not a lot of them. The other set's pretty big, and it's the one right in the middle. So we're going to try to make our way through. So we're going to talk about eating, sleep, and elimination disorders today. So when we talk about, I know, what an interesting combination. I didn't schedule it that, but that's how it is in our chapter, so that's how we look at it, right? So eating disorders. We're going to look at the major eating disorders. Just had a presentation on anorexia here in class, so um, hopefully we can build on that a little bit. Sleep disorders is the large category. There are a lot of different kinds of sleep disorders. Some say that it should be in the field of psychology. Some say it shouldn't. A lot of them are physiologically based, um, but that doesn't stop us. Dementia is in you know, abnormal psychology. We're gonna talk about that in the last class of the semester. So that's the next class, just letting you know. So let's go ahead and take a look, right? And then elimination disorders, there's only two of those, so that makes that category fairly easy to talk about. Sound good? All right, so let's take a look. Um, eating, sleep, and elimination disorders, the dysfunctions in this chapter all involve basic biological processes that are necessary for human life. So I guess that's one of the reasons why they threw them together in this chapter. I mean, you've got to eat, you've got to sleep, and you've got to eliminate. Because, you know, <laughs> one of those things goes wrong and uh, it's got problems everywhere else, right? Um, Many conditions involve patterning of the activity. So sometimes it has to do with a pattern, um, something to kind of keep in mind. Although symptoms of excess and deficiency are also diagnostic. And notice, notice that the one thing, well, if you've looked at this chapter before class, obesity is not a mental health disorder. Well, it might, you know, I know some people say it should be, and I got that. But at this point, it's not. So again, it's something to think about. We do, however, have an eating disorder that does address obesity in an indirect way. And it was just added. It was a, a test category, a proposed category in DSM-IV and DSM-IV-TR. Then it became an actual category in DSM-V. So hopefully that will help. Let's go ahead and take a look at our chart. Here it is, and it's the third one down. I'll go ahead and start with that one first then, right? So binge eating disorder is the new kid on the block. Binge eating disorder was a proposed category because it had to do with people who, who recurrently binge eat, but they're not overly concerned with their weight. That's the difference. You might see binge eating in bulimia. You might even see binge eating in anorexia. But both of those conditions, people are concerned about their weight. They're concerned about what the binge eating will do to their weight, right? So the focus is really separate than binge eating. It's really on weight and then binge eating is a symptom. Here, the symptom becomes the disorder. Binge eating disorder. Reoccurrent binges without compensatory behaviors. So they're more concerned by the binge eating. Notice it has to be present for three months, more common in females than males. We also have the other two. These are the two that you know about, anorexia nervosa, right? So anorexia, um, restriction of energy intake or food intake, if you will, plus intense fear of gaining weight. And again, there's two different types. We heard that in the presentation. We'll talk as we go through. Notice there's no minimum uh, requirement, no minimum uh, duration for diagnosis. Again, most of these, well, at least the eating disorders, you see more common in females. The third eating disorder is bulimia nervosa, reoccurrent binges and compensatory behaviors. I'll give you some suggestions for how to tell the difference between those as we go through. Three months is the minimum duration for di diagnosis, again, more common in females. And the other three disorders that you see on here really had more to do with childhood disorders 
but now they've been brought into this category. Remember, we don't separate out adolescent or childhood disorders anymore. We group them all together. So the bottom three that you see here are avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, persistent failure to meet nutritional needs, not really concerned about weight loss. So again, it has this, it doesn't have the body distortions that an anorexia would have. Um, and for male and female, it's about equivalent here. We've got pica. Pica is an eating disorder where people eat non-food substances and not for another purpose. And what I mean by that is if you, for example, travel to the Middle East, um, there are some uh, religious uh, sects that believe that if you go to the Holy Land and you go to where you know, Jesus walked, you should eat the dirt from that area because he walked there. His feet were there, right? So there's, you do the Mecca, right, to Christ's birthplace, and then and that's what you do. That's a religious rite. That's something different. With pica, this is eating non-food items for no apparent reason. Right? Sometimes this is related to pregnancy too. You will sometimes see it in pregnant women where they would desire, you know, maybe dirt or stuff like that. And you go, why? Well, in that, in that case, maybe we explain away going, well, they need minerals and nutrients that they're not seeming to get in their normal diet. But other than that, when we talk about pica, you know, eating things like stones, uh, needles, like weird stuff that, again, could cause harm. Yes. had a 2-1 ratio because you had to have eyes on him at all times. We had to have our cigarette butt on lockdown and anytime he went out in public he had to have 2 to 1 ratio so that he couldn't walk past and like and it didn't matter if it was somebody he knew, not knew, like eating cigarettes is weird anyway, but it didn't matter if it was a complete stranger. If he saw a cigarette butt on the floor, he would dart out in traffic anywhere and pick up the cigarette butt and eat it. It was terrible. So again, that kind of compulsion. And you saw that, that pica kind of symptomology in someone that had intellectual disability. And sometimes you will see some overlap, some concurrence. So thank you for sharing that. Right? The other one, the last one you see down here is rumination disorder. This one's kind of, of all of them, probably the one that just kind of makes me go, ooh, a little bit. Um, repeated regurgitation of food. So what do they do? They eat the food, they regurgitate it back up again, and then they re-eat it. Like a fly? Kind, what's that? Like a fly. Kind of like a fly, like a bird, yeah. Kind of the same kind of deal. It seems odd. You go, I don't understand it. Um, again, for both pica and this uh, rumination disorder, needs to be present for a month in order for it to be uh, considered di diagnosis. So let's go ahead and take a look at these. We'll make our way through. Anorexia, again, we just saw a presentation on it, so I'm gonna go fairly quickly. I apologize for that. If you do have questions though, stop me at any point, all right? So self-starvation as a clinical syndrome, first uh, described and named by doctors in Paris and London in the 19th century. That's what we know, right? Appears to have been exceedingly rare until the mid 20th century when its incidence increased, particularly in Western industrialized countries. That's what we heard in our presentation. We see the same thing here. Anorexia nervosa, as currently defined, involves three main features. So here are our features we have to take a look at. Number one, restricted caloric intake, insufficient to maintain normal body weight. So they're not eating enough to take care of their normal body weight. Number two, an intense fear of gaining weight. So that's the second thing that we see here, right? And then the third thing is a disturbance in the perception of body size. It's almost like a, a combination of body dysmorphic disorder. With body dysmorphic disorder, you see some, some perceived imperfection and you focus on it. You know, like, ooh, I, I, my, no, my nose is funny. I need to have surgery to correct it. Here, they see their weight as being the issue, but they're in control. And there are, there are websites out there that talk about the power of controlling your hunger that are pro-anorexic websites. 
really talk about you know, you know, gaining power by gaining control over that. All right, now, one of the symptoms that used to be required in DSM-4, or a diagnostic symptom that we used to use, was sensation of menses. So, you know, the loss of menstruation cycles in females used to be a diagnosable um, kind of symptom of anorexia. And essentially what's happening there is the person's weight is so low, even if they got pregnant, they would not be able to carry the child. So their body stops menstruation. You know, think about this, they can't even afford to lose the blood flow because their body is so malnourished. That's, but the pro-anorexic pro websites say, talk about how powerful you are, you can even stop mother nature in her tracks. So it's a spin, but, but we see that. What are the two eating patterns that are uh, characteristics of those with anorexia nervosa? The first one is restricting type. Um, the individual diets, fasts, or exercises excessively so that the intake of food is inadequate to maintain their current weight. So they are burning more than they take in and they're already underweight. In fact, the other diagnostic criteria that used to be in DSM-4-TR was that the person needs to be 15% below their ideal weight for their height. Now, if you know anything about those ideal weight charts, you know, in, here, at least in the United States, we're not even close to those ideal weight charts. Just throw those right out the window, right? If you're even like 15% above your ideal weight, you know, chart area, then you're like patted on the back, way successful, right? So to be 15% below, Imagine that you're a person and your ideal weight chart says that you should be 115 pounds, like at the low end for your body size. So someone that's 15% below that is under 100 pounds. Again, incredibly thin. That's one of the things that we see. The other cycle that we see here, we got the restricting type, we've got the binge eating purging type. Used to be thought that only binge eating and purging was associated with bulimia. No, 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 we know it can be associated with anorexia. Again, 15% below their ideal body weight, right? And we look at some of the other symptoms, this distortion of their body image. Um, notice it says the individual regularly consumes food, often in large quantities, and then com compensates for it by engaging in things to produce weight loss. Might be, again, excessive use of laxatives uh, to try to uh, get it out that way. It may be purging, you know, throwing up. The problem with purging is you never get everything out of your stomach that you put in. You think you do, but you don't. So you really don't get that. Plus, the purging can cause damage to the esophagus from the stomach acid flowing up through the esophagus. So then you cause damage to there. There's possibilities of, uh, again, abnormalities that, that end up in the esophageal area as a result of, again, repeatedly throwing up and throwing up and throwing up. Is that what you're gonna ask? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I saw your hand go up. So notice though that this type of anorexia is less common. Again, because I would tell you that this pattern of binge purge is going to tend to not keep you underweight, but actually keep you at, if not overweight, and then that falls into bulimia. So again, that's where this, this kind of crossover is. With bulimia, bulimia is binge eating that involves amounts of food larger than others would normally eat in a given time. Um, I once saw a description of a person that was on a binge and they ate 4,000 calories in one sitting. A dozen eggs, half a loaf of bread, a quart of orange juice in one sitting. So that's binge. Of course, then what happens is the person feels so excessively full, what do they tend to do? There you go, right? Tend to purge because they've got all that in them. So again, that's sometimes what we see. Notice it says it usually includes high caloric um, foods such as cakes, cookies, ice cream. That usually, you know, someone who says, I can't have Reese's peanut butter cups in front of me because I eat the whole bag in one sitting. 
Mm, okay, that's kind of virgin, you know, that's, that's, that's binging right there, right? Again, but maybe that's the only food they do it with. When we see binge cycles in bulimia, it tends to be more than just Reese's peanut butter cups. Any sweets. Yes. It does stretch the stomach, eating that much food, right? It does. It causes stretch. And again, one of the things that we see is usually people who are bulimic are at, like within their ideal weight category, if not overweight. But they become excessively focused on the weight loss. Again, remember, it's different than binge eating. Binge eating, I get concerned about binging. Bulimia, I'm concerned about binging and I'm concerned about my weight. It's that extra little piece that what is what separates them. And that's why binge eating was brought out separately. It was just to see if it was a, a category that was worthwhile and, and they found that it is. Yes? So could they like binge eat for a day and then not eat for the week? Or would if that that's, cause, would that be borderline anorexia? That would probably, again, it would depend on where the weight goes. I have a feeling that if they binged for one day and then didn't eat for a whole week, I think that would fall more into the anorexic category okay. because of the restricting that's going on. Okay. Um, now, one of the things that we usually see is we usually see these binges happen about at least three times a week. So it doesn't have to be every day that you're binging. Okay. So let me finish the description and I'll answer your question, right? It's estimated between 1,000 and 2,000 food calories are typically consumed during a binge event and you know, we think that that's a lot. Keep in mind a Whopper from Burger King is about 1,400 calories. So yeah, I mean, you take a look at it, you go. So imagine someone eating two or three Whoppers in a sitting. Right, that's what we're talking about, excessive, right? Binge eating usually takes place rapidly in secret not letting other people see, and continues until the person becomes uncomfortably full, and often the person feels out of control. They report feeling out of control, like they can't stop themselves. All right? Questions? Did you want to ask a question about that? Yeah, so if, if bulimia is that they're, they're eating all that stuff, but they're still worried about the weight, is the reason that this, aside from the fact that they're eating that much, is the reason that this is considered a mental disorder because it's not clicking for them that they're not losing weight because they keep eating them? Well, it's, it's a combination of factors, right? It's a mental disorder because it causes significant harm to the person. It's distressing to the person. Remember our discomfort, right? Our dysfunction, it keeps the person from functioning normally. Also, it's, it's abnormal. It's, uh, it's beyond the realm of what you would normally see. Yeah, you know, you might say, well, we just passed the Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States, right? You probably binge ate at Thanksgiving, right? If you're the normal American, you had turkey and way too much food that day, right? Probably felt miserably uncomfortable that day and maybe even the next day. But that's Thanksgiving. That's not three times a week. It's when it starts to become secretive and it's bothering the person. It bothers the person they have the binges but they can't control themselves because they start and they can't stop. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, here's binge eating disorder, right? Binge eating disorder, again, includes recurrent episodes of binge eating associated with both a sense of lack of control and rapid consumption, but they don't have that, that focus on weight loss. That's what separates this category out. Binge eating disorder requires that binges average at least once a week for a three-month period, and they must be associated with marked distress over the binge eating. Binges are not accompanied by the compensatory behaviors, and as such, the condition is frequently associated with varying degrees of obesity. So that person that you see on, you know, My Overweight Life or whatever the TV shows are, right, that's 600 pounds. Right? And they may be concerned about their weight, but they're more concerned about their uncontrolled eating. Like they're, they're just urges that they go and eat, 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 and then they feel crappy about themselves and they feel nasty about themselves. But it has more to do with, again, the uncontrolled binge eating that seems to be explained more by this binge eating disorder. 
So I just throw that out there. What about the kids that are significantly overweight? Would that be, would they be it, in that category? It depends on what their eating patterns are and what's going on with them. Sometimes with children, we talk about overeating and binge eating with kids. We talk about excessive, you know, eating in one sitting. So that pattern, I think, starts in childhood. But we have to be very careful because until hormones kick in, you might see a heavy baby. In fact, we used to think, oh, a heavy baby is a, is a bad baby. Not necessarily. Not necessarily because there's a lot of hormonal changes that happen as body fat happens and as kids become more active, then they start to build off some of that. So some of it can be problematic. You know, childhood obesity is an issue. I'm not ignoring that. Um, but I, I, I would probably kind of hesitate on calling someone anorexic or bulimic so early in their life or even binge eating. But again, those patterns, I think, start to show themselves early on. You know, think about this from a Freudian perspective. The person, ultimately, if we were talking about it, is stuck in the oral stage. And that's their way of coping. Overeating, eating, you know, and you can see how, you know, I feel miserable, I feel depressed about myself. Let me go and eat a ton of food and feel more comfortable. Because again, I, and we go for the comfort foods, you know, the foods that are usually high in, in calories. Did you have a question or a comment? Um, right. Right, right, with bulimia, you're right, exactly, right? You could be within that normal range. And normally that's what we see, normal range, if not maybe a little bit higher than the normal range is what we see with bulimia. Again, as a comparison with anorexia, they tend to be on the below the ideal range. So that's one of the things we see. You might go, well, I know someone who binges and eats, binges and purge, I mean, right? You see them binge and purge, but they're at normal weight, if not higher than that, we're probably gonna lean towards the bulimic side of the diagnosis. If they're under that ideal weight, we're gonna lean towards the anorexic side. All right, binge eating disorder appears to be different from the related pattern of disordered eating. Um, there is this thing called night eating syndrome. Um, in DSM, this would be diagnosed as another feeding or eating disorder. It's kind of different. This is where at night eating disorder, um, individuals consume more than half of their daily caloric intake in late night binges. Now, some of the problem is that again, this is a slightly different than binge eating. One might argue, well, they're so busy during the day, they never eat, 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 eat. And then at night they eat, which is the worst time to eat because you don't have time to burn off the calories before you go to sleep. Sometimes it's because people's patterns are that they stay up late. And in an indirect way, this is just my, I'm just throwing out my comments here, all right? In an indirect way, I wonder, you know, your body wants to go to sleep. You want to stay awake. Do you give it more energy to try to get it through that sleepiness? And if you do, is that an underlying cause of this night binging? You tend to be someone who stays up late. In order to stay up late, eat. I eat the Snickers bar because it gives me added energy. I eat two Snickers bar because one didn't cut it, right? So again, I, you know, I drink Mountain Dew because it's got high caffeine or whatever, whatever you're doing to stay up. So again, that's a little bit different than binge eating disorder, and there are some variations as you saw, right? Let's talk about the other eating disorders, then we'll talk a little bit about treatment. Um, some of the um, other ones, and by the way, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about treatment now. Eating disorders are very tough to treat. Because it's not like, and unfortunately, sometimes they're grouped into addictive disorders. So if you have an eating disorder, oftentimes, because you might be also abusing other substances, you're referred to a drug and alcohol counselor. But food addiction is different than drug addiction or alcohol addiction. It's different. Because in food, you cannot practice abstinence. So you have to reestablish a relationship with food. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. It's not like you can just say, well, I'm not ever going to eat again and food's out of control. Like a 12-step group. They have, again, sometimes some 12-step groups related to eating. The problem is, how do you say that you're out of control with your eating and you need to you know, 
become you can't become abstinent. So you, again, it becomes more difficult. It, it really does. And and I would argue that the pressures on women, and this isn't a dig in society, are way greater than those on men. Way greater, on appearance and everything else. And I say that based on just being the father of a person, a young woman who just had her sweet 16 birthday party over the weekend. And let me tell you that again, if you even looked at dress between you know, the girls that came to that party and the boys that came to that party, there was such a focus on appearance in that young age range. And I know before the party, my daughter getting ready and getting prepared and all this stuff, and I don't think she's an atypical adolescent. I think she's a normal adolescent here in the United States. And I, again, I think the focus on appearance is so great. It puts so much pressure. And I think that's what makes it so difficult. Um, so here's avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Do not eat enough food to meet their energy or nutritional needs. Unlike anorexia nervosa, the lack of appetite or avoidance of food does not involve body shape or image. Again, so that's the difference. What is the difference? It's that distortion in body image. And again, that desire for weight loss. That's what makes anorexia different than this avoidant restrictive intake disorder. And I would kind of compare them as bulimia with binge eating, anorexia res restrictive food intake. Again, there's some slight deviations that make it a different category. Notice it says this new DSM-5 diagnosis replaced the DSM-4 condition called feeding disorder of infancy or early childhood, which required a childhood onset. We don't do that today. The onset could happen at any time. Oftentimes these things start in childhood, but it's not a requirement anymore. PICA, again, we talked a little bit about this when we looked at our chart essentially involves the persistent, at least for a month, um, eating of non-nutritious uh, substances like soil, paint, cloth, string, insects, pebbles, chalk, right? Again, uh, cigarette butts, that was the example that you had. Um, eating these substances must be inappropriate to developmental level and must not be culturally sanctioned as a practice. Again, that's where the religious, you know, maybe I eat soil from where Christ was born. That's a much different kind of cultural expectation. And you go, what about, it says insects on there. Maybe there's a culture that eats insects as part of their normal diet. That would not be considered pica. This is when it's culturally different. It's different than the cultural expectations that you would have. Typically, the condition remits after several months or after a few years. So it normally goes away on its own. Um, notice it's more commonly associated with intellectual disability where its incidence can be as high as 15%. So that's what we heard in your description earlier. Again, this co-occurring intellectual disability that seems to override with this one. And then rumination disorder, that's the final eating disorder that we talked about. Again, it, it appears to be rare. So. I know some of you, whenever I gave the description, you're like, Ugh. Um, thank goodness it's rare. It's one of those things we see. But in rumination disorder, individuals repeatedly regurgitate their food. They either discard it or more commonly, they rechew it. And then, yeah. So uh, the condition must persist for a month, not be associated with a general medical condition or another eating disorder. Because if it's related to another eating disorder, that's not the same thing. Rumination disorder usually occurs in infants um, with onset before one year of age. Some older individuals with intellectual disability may also show the condition. But again, there seems to be some connection there with, uh, 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 how do I want to put this without sounding, please t don't take this, seems to be some kind of connection with immaturity infancy with developmental disability. I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean with, there seems to be something along the lines with that. So I just throw that out there. Let's talk about 
sleep disorders. We're trying to make our way through. I told you we probably wouldn't make it through everything, but maybe we can do this. Or do you want me to skip sleep disorders? I'll go right to elimination disorders and then come back. What do you think? Oh, you know what? We have time. Let's see if we can make it. So, sleep disorders. Sorry. <laughs> you know, this is an extrovert thinking out loud right there, right? That's what I'm thinking in the back of my head. So, sleep-wake disorders. Um, disturbances of sleep in the dsm 4 were described in broad terms by either these two terms, parasomnias, meanings, meaning I, I always said parasomnias meant problems with sleep. So, parasomnias are concerned with abnormal events or behaviors involving the sleep cycle or sleep-wake transitions. So again, problems with wake or sleep. Or they were put into the second category of dysomnias. And the way that I think of that is disorders of sleep. So dysomnias, again, conditions involving abnormal amounts of sleep, quality, or timing. So in DSM-4, this is what we talked about, dysomnias or parasomnias. In DSM-5, these distinctions are no longer central um, to the organization of sleep-wake disorders. So we don't really talk about them. Are they, you know, kind of like two different umbrellas? So sleep-wake disorders, parasomnias, dysomnias, and then in each one we have different categories. Now we just say sleep-wake uh, disorders, and they're all underneath the umbrella instead of being broken down a second time. All right? So again, the organization is a little bit different, but they still retain their descriptive value in discussion. So we still use the terms dysomnias and parasomnias for talking about problems of sleep versus disorders of sleep, but we don't really categorize them separately anymore like we used to. All right? So here's our chart. It's two charts long, just to let you know. In fact, I think it might even be three charts long, right? So here we go, let's go ahead and look at them, all right? First one is insomnia disorder, um, dissatisfaction with sleep amount or quality. Um, minimum duration is three months and more common in females. By the way, insomnia is the most common sleep disorder. So it's one of the most common things we see, right? So not getting enough sleep, not being able to fall asleep on time. Um, insomnia, again, not being able to sleep. You might say, why women? I think that women sleep differently than men, partly because of childcare. I think women sleep a little half awake. Does that make sense? Waiting for a child to, to call out, especially if they're a mom in those kind of situations. I think more so than dads, and that's not a dig on dads. It's just, it's just a statement. It's just a statement. Um, we have the next one, hypersomnolescence disorder. Uh, or what was called hypersomnia, right? Which is excessive sleepiness, despite getting at least seven hours worth of sleep. The normal sleep pattern is seven to eight hours per night of sleep. That's the average across, if we go across the world, that's the average, is seven to eight hours worth of sleep. Young adults like you guys, about five and a half. Just saying, right? older, or if we go into babies, if we talk about babies, babies sleep about 16 hours out of 24, if we're talking about newborns, oh, right? So again, we see that slope, right? When my daughter was younger, we had a set bedtime. We made sure she got at least 10 hours worth of sleep or she was a grump the next day. She needed that, right? But then what we see is, again, as we get older, we tend to discount that a little bit. And, and so the average for most adults is right around seven to eight hours. So here they're getting seven hours, but they're still sleepy. So in other words, they might sleep as long as 10 hours on a regular basis, right? Notice it has to be present for at least three months and there's no gender difference that we see, at least not with this disorder. Narcolepsy, that's the next one we see down here. Reoccurrent irre irrepressible need to sleep. I had a student who had uh, narcolepsy who actually had to drive about 30 minutes to class. Sometimes she would miss class. In fact, she had attendance problems in a lot of her classes because she'd be halfway to class and have to pull over on the side of the road and go to sleep. She just had an uncontrollable urge. I worked with a psychiatrist. I was doing drug and alcohol work many, many, many years ago. 
and the psychiatrist had a diagnosable narcolepsy disorder. Again, it's a diagnosable disorder. You can't discriminate. So he was hired as a psychiatrist, but he would routinely fall asleep in the middle of his sessions with his patients. One day he didn't show up to work um, because he pulled over on the side of the road and went to sleep. The only problem with that is we paid him because we needed psychiatric care. It was a rural county, so we paid him his normal rate for travel time. Oh, right. So, again, not necessarily the best situation. Um, but, again, that's a, not something that's controllable. Notice it has to be present for three months in order to meet the minimum requirement. Slightly more common in males, narcolepsy is. Um, we also have obstructive sleep apnea hypo, uh, hyponia, which is nocturnal breathing pauses uh, due to an obstruction. So sometimes it's due to an obstruction. That may require surgery. There's no minimum requirement for the diagnosis, more common in males. Um, then we also have central sleep apnea, nocturnal breathing pauses not due to an obstruction. Again, no minimum requirement for this, also more common in males, it's what we see. I tend to suffer from sleep apnea. I believe it's the non-obstructive type um, because there doesn't seem to be anything um, you know, in the airway that's causing that, um, but with a CPAP machine, a, a, a constant positive airflow, that's what the CPAP machine does. It provides constant you know, airflow into your nose. What happens is it allows you to not have that kind of problem. So maybe my tongue is relaxing and falling to the back. That would be more obstructive. They don't seem to see that. Just don't know what's causing it. So again, it's one of the things that we see. Um, Sleep-related hypoventilation, uh, um, which is decreased respiration with elevated CO2 levels. Um, that's one of the things that we see. It's unclear. Um, the gender differences, again, no minimum requirement here. How would you know that you had this? More than likely during a sleep study, it would probably be discovered. Um, we found with me that my CO2 levels dropped considerably. Um, uh, during my, my sleep cycle, which is why a CPAP machine is um, a pretty good treatment approach. Um, I guess apparently I have about 41 episodes per the night. Um, and with uh, a CPAP, I have about two. So considerable difference. I stop breathing 14 times a minute. Yeah, yeah. So again, you might be a good candidate. One of the things they talk about for uh, sleep apnea, again, if you're overweight, that can be an issue. Um, so uh, that's a problem that can happen. And again, oftentimes you don't know. You think that you've slept through the, the night. You feel well, you, you believe you should be well rested. You slept eight or nine hours or whatever, but you wake up feeling exhausted still, never feeling like you, you got a full night's sleep and you haven't. Imagine that as you go through your sleep cycle, you get down, you know, never make it to stage four because you're constantly waking up and restarting your cycle because you stop breathing. So you stop breathing. Your body shakes you to get you to start breathing again, right? And so you never get to deep, deep sleep. So you might have been in bed for 10 hours, but you never got all the way through your sleep cycle. Again, those are some of the problems we see. Circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, persistent sleep disruption due to misalignment of their circadian rhythm and a sleep-wake cycle. We oftentimes see this in people who work, work swing shift, you know, or sometimes we see this in people who work night shift. Again, because when they're supposed to be awake and when their circadian rhythm says they should be asleep are two different time periods, and on the days off, then they're back to their normal pattern. You know, so again, they never kind of get right in there. Um, the other ones that we see on here, the next one is non-rapid eye movement sleep arousal disorder, repeated partial awakening with sleepwalking or night terrors. It's one of the things that we see. Again, it's non-rapid eye movement sleep arousal disorders. Think about, you know, during REM sleep, Again, there's a lot of arousal. We see a lot of stimulation. If we do brain monitoring during uh, REM sleep, you see a lot of brain activity. 
Um, one of the things that's interesting about REM though is your body tends to be paralyzed. You don't tend to act out the activities in your dreams or what you're thinking about, right? Here we're talking about people who sleepwalk, uh, you know, or have night terrors in deep, deep sleep, non-REM sleep, where you're not paralyzed. So again, you know, and you, we know that a lot of the dreams that we remember are, you know, REM sleep because it's the closest to being wide awake. So that's why, you know, and, the, and we tend to have our brain being most alert during that time period. That's why we remember them. During night terrors, a person wakes up um, in a deep state of panic. What our belief is that is they've had a dream, but they were in such a deep, 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 deep sleep that they're not fully aware of what the dream was about. They usually wake up disoriented, not knowing what's going on. It's one of the reasons why you don't tend to wake up like someone in night terrors. You know, they usually wake up and screaming on their own. It takes a while to, to get them calm again. We see it in children. Sleepwalking, one of the reasons why we don't wake up people who are sleepwalking is, again, because our belief is this happens in deep, deep REM sleep. And if I wake you up, you're gonna be disoriented. You're not gonna know what's going on. Best thing to do is redirect you back to your bed. So just sharing that. Um, and then nightmare disorder. Nightmare disorder is repeated distressing nightmares. More common in females than males. When we talk about the difference between night terrors and nightmares, nightmares happen during, or during REM sleep. Night terrors happen during non-REM sleep. Does that make sense? So night terrors, non-REM sleep, they're, what we believe is they're like nightmares, only 10 times worse, right? But then nightmares happen during REM sleep. So just some of the differences. Um, rapid eye movement sleep behavior disorders, um, repeated arousal with complex activity during REM sleep, more common in males. So we see, might be sleep talking, might be sleep walking, might be other kinds of things. It's where your body is supposed to be paralyzed, but it's not. So something's off in the mechanism, if you want to think of it that way. And then restless leg syndrome, that's the last one we see up here. Reoccurrent um, urges to move legs, especially at night. Um, say more common in females. Apparently, I do that too, but again, is it related to stopping breathing and then my legs are struggling and kicking around because I'm not comfortable? Um, what's the relationship? Um, sometimes restless leg syndrome can be caused by medication as a side effect of medication. So again, it's another thing to kind of pay attention to. I was on a med for a while that caused restless leg syndrome. So I would, you know, at the time I was married, I'd be constantly kicking my wife. Uh, not good for a struggling marriage. You can just imagine that that didn't really add to the positive uh, outcome, right? So again, sleep-wake disorders, people with sleep-wake disorders have significant impairment, life impairment, similar uh, in degree to chronic health conditions like diabetes, health disease, or heart disease and arthritis. Again, so it's a long-term problem, tends to be chronic. Correct diagnosis may be difficult, may require extensive information about history, an evaluation and sleep lab. Um, in my history, I've had two sleep studies done now. Um, and the first one was done because uh, I was in between marriages and I, I had a, a partner who um, I woke up and they were kind of sitting on my chest going, breathe, damn it. And I said, get off me. I don't know who the hell you are, <laughs> right? Kind of frightening. She said, you stopped breathing during the night. And I'm like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. Apparently the next night I did it again. So just to prove her wrong, I took a sleep study, which of course proved her right. You know, it happens, right? <laughs> so, uh, so that's what happened. Um, and that was like 16 years ago. And of course, I didn't do much about treatment, which is not the healthiest way to, to deal with it. Um, and then 16 years later, started having some more problems. Actually, uh, a condition called cataplexy. Uh, cataplexy is a complete loss of muscle tone. Causes a person to just collapse in the middle of nowhere. Usually happens during extreme... Um, emotional uh, feelings like extreme happiness, extreme sadness, fear, whatever, um, usually associated with narcolepsy. Um, so of course, red flag, I knew what happened when it happened. I was like, uh, I think this is called cataplexy. I probably should get back to the doctor. 
went back to the doctor and found I don't have narcolepsy, but I do have, again, sleep apnea that's been untreated. So just share that as just kind of a, I don't know, I guess a personal story that hopefully you guys can grow from. All right. Um, one of the things that we know is because sleep patterns are so variable and symptoms are so common, the prevalence of most sleep disorders really is uncertain. Many people probably don't go to the doctor and have a sleep study. Um, you you kind of said that you know that you stop breathing during sleep. Have you ever had a sleep study done? That's how I know. That's how you know is you had a sleep study. But again, if you hadn't had the sleep study done, you never would have known. You would have just thought, wow, I'm just working so hard. I'm just really tired. Okay. Okay. So, right. So you took you felt tired all the time, right? Low, like a lot of fatigue. Yeah. Had had you take a paper pencil test? Yeah. And then as a result of that. Yeah. So she sent me to a lung specialist because I also have asthma. So she wasn't sure if it was a lung thing or if it was a breathing thing, which is basically the same thing. Right. And I got one of those take-home things that you put on your hand, um, and it marks how much it was and she left oxygen me voice, yeah, yeah she left me a voicemail saying oh we need you to come in yeah. so that we can get you scheduled with our doctor because you stopped breathing 14 times in a night and that's probably why you're feeling so tired all the time so now i have a cpap so there you go right so and again it takes some use getting used to yeah the cpap it did that's why for 16 years i didn't use one because i felt more like darth vader i had the full luke Right, so I felt more like that. It was this full face thing, and now they have them that's much more modern. They just kind of sit in your nose way better. I'm digging that, right? There's so, a lot of people in like that have dementia and Alzheimer's that have CPAPs. Yeah, um, that's why I was like, it's weird because I saw my dad have one, and I was like, Do you have a sleeping problem? And he's like, well, Yeah, I think. And I was like, Do you have apnea? And he's like, Yeah, that's what I have. And I was like, Yeah. Okay, well, explains why you snore like you do. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay. Yep, and snoring again can be one of those signs too, but it's not, it's not the key, you know the the key sign. So, again, I throw that out there. All right. So let's take a look at these real quick. Narcolepsy. People with narcolepsy experience repeated irresistible sleep, um, occurring at least three times per week for at least three months. So again, these uncontrollable urges to fall asleep, and it's not because you're not getting adequate sleep. With narcolepsy, you're getting adequate sleep, you still you know, are having problems. Sleep is um, unintended and may occur in inappropriate situations. Um, in addition to sleep attacks, the diagnosis requires either cataplexy, which I just described to you as that complete muscle tone, um, a deficiency of hypocretin um, or short latency, in other words, 15 minutes or, or less, to REM sleep. So again, how would you know you have some of that? Medical tests and sleep, sleep, uh, a sleep study. So some of the stuff that we see. Um, cataplexy is often precipitated by strong emotions such as anger, laughter, or surprise. Joking and laughing are the most typical triggers for cataplexy. Um, cataplexy can range from subtle signs that may not be obvious to others. Um, I. I have known something's been up for a while. I've noticed that if I laughed really hard, my, I, I felt like my eyes would get droopy. Um, seems kind of, or my neck would feel a little like lightheaded, a little dizzy, but you know, not to the point where I'd actually collapse. And right before I had my most recent sleep study, I was physically collapsing to the floor. So not a good situation. Um, again, Notice it could be drooping eyelids or a sagging jaw um, to dropping items or falling to the ground. And I was in the more severe case and probably because the sleep apnea had gone on for so long. And, um, full consciousness is maintained during the episode, which typically lasts only a few seconds or a few minutes. To some, uh, when it happens and it's more severe or pronounced, um, people might think that you're having a seizure. Um, but I can tell you in experiencing that, you know, like I, I, I knew I was losing muscle tone. I, I just couldn't do crap about it. There wasn't anything I could do. The one time it happened in front of my mother-in-law in the kitchen, and she was, I, I knew I was trying to catch myself 
Does that make sense? You have enough awareness. You're trying to catch yourself. And I, and I was trying to and I was trying to speak to tell her what was going to happen. And she had known, I'd kind of mentioned to her before. So she grabbed a chair, kind of scooted it underneath me. So I just kind of sat down on the chair, you know, and I said, sorry. And she's like, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I mean, you're alert during the whole thing. You just can't really do much about it. Um, so again, it's one of the things that happens. Um, central feature of breathing related sleep disorders. So these are all the apneas, obstruction, um, non-obstructive, you know, central sleep apnea. But the key feature of all breathing related sleep disorders is sleep disruption leading to excessive sleepiness, sleepiness or insomnia caused by a breathing difficulty. And that's what we see. Several symptoms of breathing related sleep disorders. Again, sleep apnea, breathing ceases during sleep. Um, there's actually some research that says that it's normal to stop breathing for maybe 10, maybe 15 seconds at most. It's when you're stopped breathing for a minute, minute and a half, that's when, again, we see that. So sleep apnea, hyponia, which is usually slow or shallowed breathing, again, much lower than you would expect, and hypoventilation, which is abnormal uh, blood levels of oxygen or carbon dioxide. That's what we see. For me, I guess at one point, normally your uh, oxygen level, and I don't know, maybe that was a misreading in the, you know, in the sensor, uh, but normal oxygen level is in the 90s to 100, you know, is where you're supposed to be you know, when they go in and take an oxygen level. Um, mine dropped at one point down to 48, which is like, should never have happened. But again, I, I, you know, it was just for a moment and then it popped back up again, but it's because of lack of oxygen, you know, and then severe kind of shaking. There's some suspicion. I'm just going to throw this out here. There's some suspicion that sudden infant death syndrome could have some of the same mechanisms as sleep apnea, but it's happening in childhood and that children don't have the muscle tone to shake themselves back awake. Again, we, we don't know what the causes are. We can't identify the causes, um, but there's some suspicion. So I just throw that out there. Yes. Yeah, and again, you might be a candidate for a sleep study to just check to see if you have sleep apnea because you might have that tendency. Again, something to think about, right? And is it a central functioning, again, non-obstructive cause, right? So that's what we see. Um, Breathing-related sleep disorders, let me just see if I can wrap these up. Um, most common form of breathing-related sleep disorder is obstructive sleep apnea or hyponia which involves repeated obstructions of the upper airway accompanied by loud snoring. Again, tongue falling to the back of your throat. Uh, um, sometimes if you choose not to do a CPAP machine, they can do surgery um, to kind of, you know, alter the airway or the passageway. The problem with that is after you have surgery, you're not a candidate for CPAP use anymore. So you either do CPAP or you do surgery. Surgery is more invasive. But for some people, CPAP doesn't work and they have to do the more invasive. So again, it's a trade-off. It's one of the things to think about. DSM-5 requires at least five apneas or hyponeas per hour of sleep verified by a polysomniograph, um, which results in nocturnal breathing disturbance or daytime fatigue, have evidence by 15 or more apneas or hypoapneas per hour of sleep, regardless of resulting symptoms. So again, if you're having five or more um, 
but and you're getting this excessive sleepiness, that's good enough. But if you have 15 or more, it doesn't even matter what's happening outside of there. You got problems. That's kind of where it's at. And again, for me, that's what seems to happen. I seem to have, again, about 41 episodes per night. You think about a normal sleep night of seven hours, divide 41 by seven, and you know that's about six per hour or a few more. Um, again, they only uh, tested me for part of the night and then because I'd had a sleep study before. So maybe it would have been more than that. Maybe that was just an estimated number. Um, it can be specified according to severity based on the degree of reduced blood oxygen saturation. So again, is it more severe or less severe? Um, much rarer breathing-related sleep disorder is central sleep apnea. There are five or more apneas per hour, but not related to obstruction. Um, periodic breathing pattern that occurs in central sleep apnea can be subtyped as idiopathic, comorbid with opioid use, uh, because again, opioid use, drug use can impact the respiratory rhythm, or related to sh shiny strokes uh, breathing, which is an increased, decreasing air intake pattern that is tied to the development of heart failure. So again, it's some conditions that we sometimes see, right? Um, sleep apnea hypoventilation disorder involves rather shallow or decreased breathing that leads to elevated levels of carbon uh, dioxide, CO2 levels in the blood. Sufferers complain of frequent waking, sleepiness, insomnia, headaches. The condition is thought to be uncommon, but there may be it may be increasing due to a rise in obesity and a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, so COPD. So while this was thought to be rare, maybe not so much, at least here in the Western cultures, we'll have to pay attention to that. Um, circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders involve persistent sleep disturbance due to a mismatch uh, between the person's internal 24-hour sleep-wake cycle and the scheduled requirement by the person's environment. And so you can see all of these different options here for the different types of circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, delayed sleep phase type, um, advanced sleep phase type, shift work type, irregular sleep-wake type, or non 24-hour sleep-wake type. So again, depends on what your environmental requirements are. If you're on shift work, we're gonna talk about that. Maybe you're in such a job that you don't really have a set pattern. It seems to be all over the place. In that case, maybe this final category is what we see. So again, it's problematic. It's what we end up seeing. Um, and then delayed sleep phase type. Again, greater difficulty uh, shifting the sleep-wake cycle forward. But once sleep is initiated, it's normal. So can't seem to fall asleep, but once you are asleep, you're okay. Individuals continually um, feel continually sleep deprived due to the need to maintain social or occupational obligations, except on the weekends or during vacations when they tend to shift back to their later cycle. Again, maybe your uh, uh, night person, you know, that's just how your circadian rhythm is set up, but your life cycle requires you to be up at 6 a.m. You know, so you never, but then on the weekends, your days off, you can, you know, be your normal self and then you seem to be okay. So again, it's some of the stuff we see. Advanced sleep phase type. These individuals experience earlier sleep onset and wakening with an inability to adjust to the conventional uh, later sleep-wake times. And then irregular sleep-wake type. Um, again, these individuals lack a discernible sleep-wake rhythm. The sleep is fragmented um, into at least three different periods during the day. So maybe you sleep, you know, for two or three hours, wake up and work, sleep for two or three hours, wake up and work. Um, I, again, I, I could see this happening in college students, um, those with crazy schedules that do a lot more of independent or self-focused work, maybe even those that are self-employed. So stuff to kind of think about. And then these, these other ones, I just want to wrap up these subtypes um, and then we'll stop. Oop. Here we go, I just screwed stuff up. Come on. Right, 
So non 24 hour sleep wake type, the sleep phase gradually increases and drifts out of a 24 hour alignment so that the sleep time moves into daytime hours and then shift work again, the most common um, is those on night shift or rotating schedules. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna stop right here. This is slide 27, all right? And what we'll do is we'll start from there. These are non-rapid eye movement sleep arousal disorders. That's the category we'll start, start with when we get back together. Next class, we will wrap up this PowerPoint. We only have about nine slides or 10 slides, I guess I should say, left. Then we'll talk about our final chapter of the semester. So thank you for listening.